you're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Amen. Thank you. Since he did not feel the need to include this piece of information, I will tell you that's Mike Hall. He is the pastor of Stuff That Gets Done. That's actually his official title. He's the pastor of Doing Things. And I'm Eric Barton, and I'm the one who doesn't do things. That's sort of, that's sort of my whole life ethos. He doesn't do stuff. So I want to welcome you as the guy who doesn't do stuff to, to church this morning. We're glad that you're here. We are convinced that your presence in this place is not an accident that our sovereign God and his goodness and grace has divinely directed your steps, that you would be here this morning, that you would hear from him by his spirit, among his people, from his word. Because we believe that when we come together and God is present, and he is, that he literally speaks to us in the present tense through his word. Even through some, well, I'll just tell you some strange passages in the Bible, which we're going to tackle this morning. But I want to start off by telling a little bit of a story on myself, and I've already sort of spoiled the punchline. It's about doing things. When I was a kid, a wee lad, I got to spend a lot of time helping my dad around the house with projects. Now, my dad is, how shall I say this? Dad was probably the most accomplished yet uneducated MacGyver of the 20th century. Now, for those of you who are too young to know what MacGyver is, MacGyver was this hero of ABC evening television when I was a kid, and MacGyver could do and fix anything. He could like literally take over uh, a nation with a coat hanger and some chewing gum. He could make anything, solve any problem. He could do anything, and that was my dad. There was no problem that he could not resolve. He pretty much remodeled our tiny, falling apart little cracker box house with his bare hands, and I had the privilege of working alongside him, and when I say the privilege of working alongside him, it means he told me, work alongside me, and I did so. It really wasn't an option. I wanted to be outside throwing a stick at something or poking the neighbor's cat or doing anything, but Dad made me work next to him so that I could learn to do things. And yet, if you've been to my house, you know that this guy still doesn't know how to do things. But my dad would say, well, here's what we're going to do. I need you to uh, take that bolt off over there. And so I would, okay, I'd slink over there, and I'd put my two pink little pudgy fists on the bolt, and I would try to get it, and, and I couldn't get it off. And dad would make that expression that every dad ever has made. He'd just be like, how did you come from me? Like, how did that happen? How? Wow, how? Use a wrench, boy. And I, oh, okay, okay, wait, what's a wrench? And then he would begin to lecture and verse about the simplicity of the wrench and how it gives us mechanical advantage. And when I heard mechanical advantage, it sort of sounded like math, and so I turned him right off. Like, I had no idea what he was talking about. He's like, listen, we want to use the principles of the universe, uh, leverage and gravity. And I was like, yeah, my friend has Pong. Can I go over and play Pong with him? Because I don't, I don't get this. But he would, he would teach me, and I would learn how to do a few basic things. And Dad would say, again, what every dad would say is, hey, stop trying to work harder, work smarter. Which, if you're me, that's an uphill battle. That's just never going to happen. But I remember watching Dad, and after a time, sort of figuring out his pattern. 
sort of beginning to figure out the way he did what he did, so much so that I began to be able to predict what he wanted, what he needed before he asked for it. Now, I remember that was some of the most warm feelings where when dad would be doing a thing, cutting this board or whatever, I would already have the next saw ready because I just knew if he's done this, he's going to do this, and at some point he's going to need this. And sure enough, I would hold this piece for him or whatever, and he would look over, and it would be ready. Just like a nurse in an operating room hands the doctor the scalpel right in rhythm, I would do that, and dad would smile. And that was all I needed. That's all it took. That was all the compensation, the warmth in the world that I needed. I began to be able to anticipate what my father wanted. And there was joy, and there was relationship, and there was pride and satisfaction in the work that we were doing. One of dad's great legacies was, listen, it's not about you getting stronger at this. You're never going to be strong enough. And if all you ever try to do is get stronger, you will be frustrated, you will be miserable, which I think is actually very helpful, an interpretive key for us attacking this passage that we're going to study today, which is going to lead us to our big idea, which is a little bit basic, but I think it's going to be profound for us as we walk through this passage. It simply goes like this. Might is not our plight. Yes, that's clever because it rhymes, but the passage that we're going to study, I have heard taught and preached so many times in the opposite direction of what I think it's intended to convey that I want us to say right up front, that might is not our plight. This is not about us getting better, bigger, stronger, faster at anything. It is about knowing our Father so well that He will do the work because He is the one that is strong. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23. All this spring semester, uh, for those of you that are visiting with us, we have been in a study in the life of David, this shepherd, warrior, poet, and king learning all of the ways that he is the man after God's own heart, all of the different ways of the stories of David, how they point us forward to the promised provision of the Messiah, that one that God will send who will be the solution to all the human problem. He is the divine solution to the human problem. All of the hopes, all the dreams, all the yearnings, all the desires of the Old Testament are all answered with a resounding yes in Christ, in the Messiah when he's come. And all these stories about David prepare us for that. We've met David who was anointed as a king as a young boy, but then has to wait 10 more years as crazy King Saul holds on to the throne. And God uses that long decade to prepare David for a life of nobility as he will come and reign. We see David destroy and kill Goliath, he who blasphemed against the God of Israel. We see David on the run from King Saul. We see David fight some incredible battles. We see David marry multiple women and begin to sort of go off course a little bit. And yet he is a heart after God's, always wanting to know the will of God. He writes some of the most beautiful psalms in all of the Psalter during this time as he's running away from Saul. And then he ascends the throne after King Saul has died, after Samuel has died. And he shows kindness to the last remaining surviving relative of King Saul, this crippled kid named Mephibosheth. And then he decides, I'm going to build a temple for God. And God says, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And then we see David with some idle time on his hands make a horrific decision to take the wife of another man, betray him, and put that man to death. Now, we're going to fast forward a little bit after all of that sweeping narratives to chapter 23. 
Now, chapter 23 is an interesting chapter. The first seven verses of 2 Samuel 23 are actually David's final words, his swan song, his last address. And we're going to cover that in a few weeks in mid-April. But for today, we're going to tackle chapter 23, verses 8 to the end of the chapter. And your Bible might say, David's mighty men. We're going to tackle that. We're not really sure when this passage takes place. It's a little bit frustrating. It's kind of out of order. It's chapter 23, and yet many scholars believe that it takes place in 1 Samuel 23 when David is on the run from King Saul hiding in the caves of Adullam. A lot of other people, me among them, think that no, this actually happens in 2 Samuel chapter 5 when David is on the run from the Philistines, meaning David has become the new king and the Philistines have raided, trying to nip this new kingdom in the bud. And so David has, for the second time, had to flee his capital. He's back in the caves as the Philistines are setting up shop. That's when I think this happens. He's a new king and the Philistines, the enemies of God in Israel, have swept into Israel. The tension mounts. So 2 Samuel chapter 23. I'm going to begin reading in verse 8, theoretically here. 2 Samuel 23, and in verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men. Now, many people have taught this, preached this, as if this is a passage that tells you and me how to be better, bigger, and stronger. I think if we try to use this passage that way, it'll utterly frustrate us. That means we're trying to read the Bible with us in mind. But Jesus himself says in Luke 24, 27, that we are to read the Old Testament with him in mind. All of Moses, meaning all the Pentateuch, all the prophets, they are all talking about and preparing us for Jesus. So we want to read this long narrative passage with how does this point us to and prepare us for Jesus. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. These guys belonged to David. They, they, they were not his slaves, don't misunderstand, but they were his to command. See, then, as now, all of Israel is military. Did you know that? All of Israel is militarized. Then, as now, when you turn 18, you are in the army of Israel, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. Male or female, you are in the army, and you will remain in the army at some level, either as a reservist or full-time, for decades, so that if the alarm goes off, the siren sounds, the text messages go, you are called to defend the nation. And just like then, everybody in Israel over the age of 20 in that time was in the military. But these guys were above and beyond. These guys were voluntarily attaching themselves to David. They saw something in him that they said, that guy, that guy gets it. He is a leader worth following. It's almost as if David was the head and all of this misfit band of toys, these miscreants, were the body. Sort of what we're getting prepared here for. And these are their names. First of all, Yoshev, Bashevet, this guy, great name. Now, all of these names mean a great deal. We can't get too wrapped around the axle of what they all mean, but the first guy we're going to get introduced to is Yoshev Bashevet. His name means he who sits in his seat. It's a tremendous name. He's the guy who's in a chair. That's, that's his name. It means he who sits in his seat, kind of like maybe on in a throne and a possessive authority, or it might mean he who dwells in shame. We really don't know. This is a weird name. And in fact, all these names and a lot of the math 
in this chapter doesn't always seem to add up. There's a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 11 that sort of has the same idea that's compiled by a different author, and the math doesn't exactly jive up, and the names are sometimes spelled differently, but here's the deal. That's not the point. I think if we were all native Hebrew speakers, this would make a whole lot more sense. We would get it. It would sort of flow. But for us, as we've translated it into English, it doesn't seem to work very well. So this is what we're going to find out about this first guy. His name is Yoshev Bashevet. He is a Takemonite. He was the chief of the three, or he is the captain of the leaders. It's a weird Hebrew expression. We don't know exactly what it means, so we just say he was the chief of the three. Here's what we know about him. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. What? This is like the coolest spear of all time of spears. This dude kills 800 people at one time with one spear. Now, we know anthropologically that 3,000 years ago, the average Hebrew man was about five foot four and weighed about 136 pounds. That was a busy spear, y'all. This is a little fella, and he's just winging this thing all over the place. And yet, this whole passage over and over and over again, it's going to say, and Yahweh won a great victory. But literally, Yahweh gave a great salvation. Every single time. I don't think that this guy, Yoshev Bashavet, was really that impressive to look upon. I think he was probably just an average, everyday guy. We're told earlier that all the guys that showed up were in debt and were totally down on their luck. They're, they're not upstanding, regal citizens. I don't think there was anything super impressive about this guy or the other ones that we're going to meet. In fact, I think they were a lot like Samson. All of our children's stories seem to depict Samson, who is swole up. He looks like Rambo ate Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't think Samson looked like that. Samson did all kinds of hilarity and hijinks, like he picks up the gates of one city and carries them way over the hills up another mountain and plants them there. <laughs> and they go, how in the world did this guy do that? What is the secret to your strength? I think Samson looked a bit like me. I think he was pasty and pudgy, and they couldn't figure out why he was able to do things because the Spirit of the Lord had come upon him. Might was not his plight. God is the one who has all might. I don't think the guys that we're going to list here in 2 Samuel 23, I don't think they looked all that impressive either. I think these were people on whom the Spirit of the Lord came and his might shone through their weakness. But he kills 800 people in one sitting? I don't know how this happens. He never says a word. He doesn't have to. And I'm just thinking, 800 people? Can you imagine the humanitarian crisis? Oh, the flies. This is Israel in summer. Ew, ew, ew. The text is unconcerned. It just said, yeah, this is the kind of guy he was. This is what he did. One spear, 800 dead. Wow. Well, as if that weren't enough, we're going to meet his buddy. Verse 9. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar. Eleazar means God is my help. It is the Hebrew version of the Greek name Lazarus. God is my help. He was the son of Dodo. Well, if your dad's name was Dodo, you know you got to be tough, right? I mean, you're going to have to be scrappy if your daddy named a Dodo. Well, actually, Dodo in Hebrew, it means beloved of God. So what we're hearing here is that he has a lineage and a heritage and a legacy of loving the Lord. He's the son of Dodo, the son of Ahohai. 
He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. Listen to what this guy does. He rose and struck down the Philistines. All the rest of the Israeli army said, we're out on this deal. There's too many Philistines. They've got weapons. They've got steel. They're tall and big, and they've been like drinking that milk with growth hormones in it. These guys are scary. We're out on this deal. But this one guy, Eleazar, God was his help. He stuck around. He rose and he struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. He hacked and whacked so long that he became dehydrated. He couldn't even relax the muscles around the hilt of his sword. And he just keeps hacking Philistines until he's just congealed with muck and mess from these dead Philistines. And the Lord brought a great victory. Literally, the Lord brought a great salvation that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Like, where have you guys been? Oh, that, that dude's got like an iPhone 5. I'm going to take that. They just came back in hordes to strip the slain that Eleazar had killed. And this is the kind of guy he doesn't even mind because he was representing his king. This is the kind of guy he was. Well, there's a third guy. Next to him was Shammah. Shamach means desolation. Again, these are not good names for your kids. We're not going, hey, little desolation, come here. Oh, you broke it again. Big surprise. No, 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 no. We don't know if that was his actual name or just a nickname, but this guy's name is Shamach, the son of Agi the Hararite, which means he's from the Judean hill country. He's probably pretty rugged. He's a mountain man, all right? The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But Shammah took his stand. He literally says, my life ain't worth a hill of beans. That's where this comes from, okay? It's a little, little field full of lentils, and he says, no, not on my watch, not today. And he sticks his foot in the ground, and he says, I'm going to defend this little plot. Well, what's the deal? It's just lentils. I don't even like lentils. Well, what's happening is the Philistines are doing a border raid they are advancing and they're stealing the crops and the produce and the livelihood of the Israelites. And if they steal this food, it's not just they're taking their stuff, they're condemning the Israelites to starve to death in the winter months. And so Shammah says, with God as my might, I will stand. And sure enough, verse 12, he took his stand in the midst of the plot and he defended it and struck down the Philistines and the Lord worked a great salvation. See, might is not our plight. Ours is simply to know the heart and the mind of our God that we will stand and we will do whatever he wants. Now, I got to tell you, these narratives of these first three dudes, I find personally very frustrating because I want to see more action. I want to hear what actually goes on. I want more narrative setting. I want to know what's happening. Like for me, I want to hear the slow driving percussive drum beat of the battle scene. I want a 3D camera rig that is capturing all the nuance and the blood and the guts. I want it to look something like this. Oh, that's right, Shema. You bring it.
And there he is, Yoshev Betshayet, just standing around going like, well, that was pretty awesome. That's how I want it to happen. Unfortunately, our Bibles read us more than we read them. And while I want to have that scene, our Bibles never, ever glorify military bloodshed. Or it'll talk about battles and wars and people giving their lives up and being slain, but it never glorifies. It never, never lifts it up. Why? Because the Bible knows that in my flesh, I would obsess about that guy and I would settle. Like, I don't need God. I just need a captain like that. I just need a captain like Shema, Captain Desolation. I'll follow that superhero. Except that the Bible makes it clear that it was not in his power. The Lord won a great salvation that day. Well, then the text is just going to tell us some more of these exploits. And from verses 13 to 17, we get a very famous story that if we're not knowing what to look for, it can be very upsetting, alarming, and even frustrating. So 2 Samuel 23, beginning in verse 13, here's one of the episodes that these three guys did. And the three of the 30 chief men went down. That means they went down in elevation and came about harvest time. That means it's summer to David at the cave of Adullam when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. The valley of Rephaim is just immediately to the southwest of Jerusalem. It means the Philistines are inland. They're not supposed to be this close. This is also why I think this happens during 2 Samuel 5, if you want to make a note there, because this is where the Philistines were back then. They are encamped just southwest of the capital. They're not supposed to be this close. Verse 14 David was then in the stronghold, that means in the caves, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. The garrison was at least 20 Philistine soldiers, just to the east of Jerusalem. So they have an encampment southwest of Jerusalem, and they have a garrison east of Jerusalem. In other words, Jerusalem is surrounded. It's just about to fall. David is in peril here of losing the whole kingdom. Even though God promised you will be a king, and you will have a descendant reign on the throne of Israel forever. David's going, uh, I'm in a cave with 400 guys, and there's maybe 600 teeth between them. This, this is not supposed to how, it, how it's supposed to go, God. This is not working out. They have a garrison in Bethlehem. David was from Bethlehem. His family was from Bethlehem. Bethlehem was home turf. This is where Boaz meets Ruth and marries her and has Obed, who has Jesse, who has David. This is his family home. And the Philistines have encamped there, and David is longingly wishing that things were not as they are. David is homesick. And so he's going to say something in verse 15. And David said longingly. It's a, it's a rough translation. David breathed out. He sighed. He lamented. He mourned. Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Now, one thing we have to get clear, because as 21st century Western readers, we don't get this. David's not thirsty when he says this. We think Israel, it's all brown, it's desert. No, 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 no. We know then as now that around the caves of Adullam, there is plenty of water. In fact, the caves of Adullam flood very frequently. There's plenty of water, wells, cisterns, and springs. David was not thirsty. He's wrestling with God. God, you said, but it's now been almost 10 years, and I'm still in a cave. I don't feel very kingly. I just wish this bad thing had never happened. 
I wish things had gone the way I envisioned your promise going. You ever been there? I've been there. I call it Monday. I just wish this bad thing wasn't happening. You made a promise, and it's supposed to go the way I want it to go. And he just says, I just wish I was home and could drink from that water. And then my favorite word in the entire chapter, then, then. I just love the first word of the next verse. Then, verse 16, the three mighty men. <laughs> then they formed a committee, discussed how they would raise the funds for the project, had several more meetings, formed and established several subcommittees, worked out some bylaws, and said, so now these dudes just went and did it. They just did. Why? Because they didn't so much hear their king as they overheard their king. So, oh, he's got a wish. He's got a desire. Let's do something. So verse 16, Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem. Now, that, again, is so shockingly succinct. Let me just say, from Bethlehem to the caves of Adullam and back, or actually from Adullam to Bethlehem and back, that's 25 miles. It's summer. It's 25 miles round trip. It says they broke through the lines. We have this idea that they sort of, you know, went all ninja sneak attack and went around them at nighttime. No, no, no. They kicked in the front door. They went straight through and broke through the lines, and they went and they drew water out of the well. Now, we have a tendency to think, oh, sure, a well. You know, it's a nice cylinder of mortar and stone, and it's got a, a nice little shingled roof and a rope and a pulley and an oak bucket. <clears throat> That's not a well. No, a well 3,000 years ago, was a great big hole in the ground that they had dug. And it had a little staircase around the interior wall that was about that wide. And you had to run down there and dip your animal skin and fill it full of water while your two buddies were up on the top just hacking people like it was their job. This is what they did. And then they come, one guy comes back out of the well with a, with a skin full of water. And you've got to imagine the Philistines going, What? This is for water? Like, they're not here to assassinate our king. They're not going to take our women. They're not even trying to take our Wi-Fi codes. They're just here for water? And they knew that Adullam had plenty of water. Can you imagine how demoralizing and discouraging it must have been for them? And sure enough, they charged their way back out, and they give the water to David in verse 16. They carried it, and they brought it to David, but he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord. Now, in our flesh, I'm betting most of us have the tendency to read that and go, oh, no, what a waste. That was sweet Bethlehem water. It wasn't that cheap tap stuff that comes out of a doulam. That was Bethlehem Springs, baby. No, 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 it's not a waste. It was worship. Listen to how David explains this. And he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. This is just one example. David said, these guys loved their king so much, they were willing to risk life and limb. I'm not worth that. But you are. You alone, Yahweh, are worthy of those kinds of men. And he pours the water out on the ground. Now, you might think that the men went, oh, God. I can't believe you would do that. No. That is the exact reason these men were loyal and faithful to David. He's the kind of king that loves God. He's the kind of king that rightly represents God. 
to the people. And so these men's resolve was even tighter, even more closely bonded together to follow him all the way through. Well, verses 18 to 39, we're going to get a very long roll call. And uh, most of these names I can't actually pronounce, but I'm going to try. And so you're going to get to have the abdominal pain of empathy as I walk through all of these names and trip over most of them because there's a reason. All scripture is God-breathed. These names recorded for us 3,000 years later. I think it matters. So bear with me. We're going to go here in verse 18 and following. We've met the three. Those were some bad dudes. And the three were the three. And there ain't nobody like the three. Now we're going to meet two more. Now, Abishai is the brother of Joab. Joab is the general of the army. He's the son of Zeruiah. He was the chief of the 30. And he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. So Abishai is not to be trifled with. No, it wasn't 800 guys, but that's just because 800 didn't show up. All 300 that showed up when Abishai wielded his spear, they all died. And he's the brother of Joab. Now, Joab, interestingly, never gets mentioned in this list of mighty men. The thought is either he didn't have to be mentioned because he's the general over all of the army, everybody already knows, or he doesn't get listed because his heart was divided and he's not always on the same page with David. I don't know. My sense is that he was, it was uh, an obvious deal that he was uh, a part of the 30. Verse 19, he was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. I mean, there's the three, you know, because those guys were super bad dudes, except they probably weren't. God just did incredible things through them. Verse 20, and Benaiah. Now, I do love this guy. Benaiah, the son of Yehodiah. He was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. Now, that kind of just chaps me because he does things, apparently, and I don't. And yet, this guy, this is how he's known. He struck down two aerials of Moab. <laughs> we, we have absolutely no idea what that means. Nobody. You can check out a thousand commentaries. Nobody knows what that means. Are these like two space aliens from Moab? No idea. Two angel creatures from Moab? No idea. The sons of some king named Ariel? Maybe, probably not. We have no idea. Like two fierce spider monkeys from Moab? No idea. But they're dead now. Because <laughs> Benaiah done killed them, Okay. He also went down and struck down a lion. Now, I love this. This prepositional chain is so fantastic. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. This is good. Okay, so let me tell you about my man Benaiah here. First of all, if a lion walks through these doors, I'm going to scream like I'm on fire and I'm going the opposite direction. Good luck to all of you. Not Benaiah. Benaiah finds a lion and he's like, oh, yeah, a lion, you're out in the open? Not good enough. Getting a hole, lion. So the lion goes into a pit. This is not where you want to fight a lion. He jumps in the pit, but not just on any day. It's a day when the snow had fallen. Why does that matter? Let me ask you, what do lions eat in the middle of winter? Nothing. And so they're cranky and fussy and hungry in a pit with a Hebrew man who's probably not all that swole. And only Benaiah comes up out of the pit. That's kind of amazing. All right, so this is what happens. He kills a lion in a pit on a day that the snow had fallen, and he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. Like, what is that? <laughs> like, he went to the mall in Cairo, walked in the Abercrombie store, like, hey, you got six-pack of abs. Good, kills it. 
No, 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 no. It's a weird translation. It's, uh, he was a man of standing. He was impressive. He was a specimen. I don't know why it translates handsome. That's very bizarre. Like he had this wonderful scarf and he had, to, no, no, no. He was just an impressive fellow. And Benaiah was still snowy lion in his teeth, kills this Egyptian. This is the kind of man that he was, all right? The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a club. You shouldn't say staff, you would say club. Benaiah showed up to a spear fight with a stick. <laughs> and then watch what he does. He snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, who was apparently busy like combing himself or something, and he killed him with his own spear. That's cold, y'all. He said, give me that spear. And then this is the kind of man Benaiah was. This was a rugged dude. In fact, later on, David's going to appoint him over his bodyguard, you think? That's a good call. Later, when Solomon becomes the king, he makes Benaiah his chief henchman. Like, he needs some dirty work done, he calls Benaiah. I need that guy whacked, he calls Benaiah. This is the kind of guy you want around. This is what we look for as elders, incidentally, right? Just so you know. <laughs> These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehodiah, who won a name beside the three. I mean, he was great and all, but he wasn't like the three, because, I mean, come on, the three, Right? Verse 23, he was renowned among the 30, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. And here we go. Shammah of Herod, Elikah of Herod, Helez the Peltite, Ira, the son of Ikesh of Tekoa, Abiezer of Anathoth, Mebunai, the Hushathite, Zalman, the Ahuhite, Maharai of Netophah. I have no idea where these places are, what they mean. Stick with me. This matters. Heleb, the son of Baana of Netophah, Ittai, the son of Ribai, and Gibeah, the people of Benjamin, Benaiah of Pirathon, Hedai of the brooks of Gash, Abi Alban, the Arbathite, Asmavet of Bahu. What in the world? Some of these places aren't even in Israel. This is a ragtag bunch of Gentiles who have seen something in a Jewish king that has made them say, that's worth my life. I will come and affix and attach and adhere my life to this Jewish king. We've got Syrians. We've got Ammonites. We've got Arameans. We've got people from all way across the Jordan to the east, all who are coming to unite their lives with this Jewish king. Interesting. Eliaba, the Shalbanite, the sons of Jashan, Jonathan, verse 33, Shammah, the Hararite, Ahiam, the son of Sharar, the Hararite, Eliphet, the son of Asabai, of Maacah, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, of Gilo. Ooh, that's a big one. Eliam was the father of Bathsheba. Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. Both of them were David's mighty men, which makes what he did all the more tragic. Hezro of Carmel, Paarai, the Arbite, Egal, which means redeemer, the son of Nathan, of Zobah, Bani, the Gadite, Zelek, the Ammonite, Naharai of Beeroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gareb, the Ithrite, salute. And then we come to the final verse, Uriah, the Hittite, 37 in all. And the list lands with a thud. Like all these great guys, all this stuff, loyal to their king, faithful to their king because they saw something in their king that was divine, something that looked like God and Uriah, the Hittite. You, you remember the one who had been betrayed and murdered by his king because his king stole his wife. And it lands like as a reminder, oh, there's no heroes. 
Even the best of men are men at best. And yet this error, this mess that David made would be the framework and the the confines of grace that he would live the rest of his life in. The Apostle Paul picks up on this much later and says, I murdered Christians. I'll never get rid of that. I'll never, ever stop having that reality. I killed God's people. I did it. And yet, that error, that arrogance created the framework in which the Apostle Paul lived. And he said, my weakness is the arena in which the strength of God is made manifest. God says, my strength is made perfect in your weakness because might is not our plight. It's knowing the God of might. Which leads me to then, very quickly, just three quick implications. Three things just to sort of take away from this passage, because it is a bizarre passage with a whole lot of names, but that leads me to my first one. It goes like this. God loves lists. Do you know that? God loves lists. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, before the foundations of the earth, your name was written in his list of life. Before he said, let there be light, God said, let there be life. God loves lists. He never forgets a name. This infinite, eternal, sovereign God is intimately concerned with the affairs of small, little people like you and me. Or let me put it another way. Our Bible is chock full of these massive, grand, sweeping theological truths, these doctrinal enormities. And God uses great lengths to tell us all about these massive theological truths. But you know how he paints the pictures? These tiny little paintbrushes that are you and me. These tiny little paintbrushes throughout human history, thousands and thousands of years. And you and I are the little paintbrushes that God uses to paint these massive sweeping pictures. You see, we are created in his image. But not like me. I use a paintbrush. It gets a little rigid or dirty. I just throw it out and buy a new one. Not God. He never forgets a paintbrush. He never forgets a name. In fact, we see that our Bibles are very, very emphatic about people's names. The New Testament picks this up as well. All throughout the New Testament writings, we see list after list of people's names after names. Luke chapter 8, my favorite chapter in the Gospels, starts off and it's got this long list of women's names. These women who privately financed and funded the earthly ministry of Jesus. God never forgets a name. We go to Paul in Colossians and he references all these different people who he just was heartsick for, that he just loved and he missed so much. There's Epaphras and there's Onesimus and there's Ariel. All of these people, all through the book of Acts, we have all these different names. We meet Priscilla and Aquila. The church in Rome had Phoebe and Jutilla. All of these names, God never forgets a name. God loves lists. God doesn't forget. He loves the smallness of us as a people. And the good news of the gospel is that he really does want to be deeply involved in our little lives. Second point, God doesn't always answer prayer with whom you expect. (laughs) God does not always answer prayer with whom you expect. David finds himself in a cave on the losing end of a Philistine battle. He says, God, I need some help. I need the 1977 Dallas Cowboys, and God sends the 2017 Cleveland Browns. That's a bad day. Like, whoa, no, 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 God. I need some help. I need an army. I need some mechanized infantry. I need some gunpowder. And up walks the land of the misfit toys. Like, hi, Dave, we're here to help. Oh, no, 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 no. 
But what if some of the people that you and I busily try to get out of our lives are actually the people that God has sent to be the answer to our prayer, even though they're not what we expect? You might remember a woman of estate and standing named Naomi, who was an Israelite who ventured into Moab, loses everything, and as she's trying to come back to Israel, this pesky, foreign, idolatrous, pagan Moabitess named Ruth will not leave her alone. Oh, no, no, no. Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your God, my God. Your people, my people. And finally, Naomi relents and says, fine. Okay, fine, come along. And Ruth ends up being a sevenfold blessing to her. What if God has called you to be the unexpected answer to somebody else's struggle? No, God, I'm in trouble. I need you to help me, but I need you to help me my way. God will never do it. God will never do it. He's way too creative, and he's involved intricately and intimately in the lives of so many other people. Be wary of the people that God crosses your path. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, we have to be aware of the ministry of interruption. The moment you become too busy for anybody is the moment you unbusy yourself because the sovereign of the cosmos may be intersecting your path with another. Number three, God's mind is our mandate. Or let me nuance that. His wish is our command. Do you see that the the three simply heard the sigh of their king and they jumped at the chance because they knew him. They knew what he was like. They knew what that meant. And they went and said, you see this? We can do this. And that actually was a turning point in the conflict. They knew that if these three could break through the Philistine lines, the army would be victorious because God would give such a great salvation. And sure enough, They simply knew the heart of their king. Just like me when I got to work with my dad, I began to understand what it is that he wanted, what he needed, and I would eagerly anticipate the opportunity to respond. He didn't have to tell me. That's what we get to do. Now, in the Old Testament, nobody had that sort of proximity, that nearness with God. But in the New Testament, Jesus has come. He's lived. He's died. He rose again. He ascended, and he sent his spirit so that the Apostle Paul says we have an incredible advantage and an opportunity. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. Paul, quoting the Old Testament, says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Short answer, nobody. But things have changed. We don't get to instruct God. However, we have the mind of Christ. We get to think God's thoughts after him. We read God's word. We spend time with his people. We Seek his spirit, and we begin to know what the Father wants before he even has to tell us. Do you see the joy and the love that exists there? And by the way, that's the biblical model of the word obedience. We in our culture have a tendency to think obedience means i got to do something I otherwise don't want to do because it's going to interrupt my otherwise busy day. Obedience. Yeah, I know we just got to obey. That's not obedience. Obedience is, ooh. I bet he's going to want that sawzall here in about three minutes. I'm going to go get it. So when he reaches for it, I'm going to have it ready. Oh, the delight of my heart to bring my father delight. Do you know it? The religious person says, I've got to go and do all this stuff so that he will notice. But the recipient of the gospel, a Christian says, I know him and I love him and he loves me. What can I do? Because he loves me, because I love him. Not because I have to, but because I get to. 
So let me just say this morning, if you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus, and you're still merely trying to get through life, doing what you have to do to earn some sort of reward, you will always be frustrated because the siren song of our culture and society says that might is your plight, that you have to be better, bigger, stronger so that you can compete. But newsflash, our Bible says you've already lost. And so I invite you to believe that there was actually a strong man, Jesus, who is the Christ, who went down into the dark place, the book of Hebrews says, into the depths and the darkness where we could never go. And he retrieved, if you will allow, the water of life. Because we could never get it on our own. He has done it. We believe that this is truth. And for the rest of you, perhaps, you're a believer, but you've gotten out of the rhythm and the rut of simply seeking the heart and the mind of your father. And you've gotten into a busyness of simply doing, trying to achieve and to earn. And I just want you to know, you will be withered as in the sun of Israel in summer. But draw near, seek him in his people, in his word, by his spirit, and you will desire to do what he desires. Might is his plight. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ, to redeem us to yourself and to one another. Father, I do pray if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, who does not believe that Jesus is Messiah, then above and beyond their capacity to understand or explain it or figure it out, you will move and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, that he is who he says he was, he did what he said he would do. Would you bring salvation to this house? Would you speak continually by your spirit through this word that we've just preached? Would you help us to fall ever more deeply in love with Jesus for those of us who are believers? That we would seek earnestly your heart, your mind. We would think your thoughts after you. May it be exactly as I have prayed, Father, or even better. We pray all these things the only way we can, by the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you all so much again for being here. I want to again remind you that next Sunday is Palm Sunday. We'll have our Passover Seder the following Wednesday, Good Friday service in this very room, and then Easter Sunday, April 1st. Let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction, and we will be dismissed. It goes like this. Now may our God, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, may he equip you for every good work, and may you want to obey. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.